You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme with the National People's Congress in full swing in China, what are the headlines or moves on the margins that we should be looking out for? Also ahead, we're in Stockholm where NATO Secretary General is meeting the Swedish PM to talk about the country's accession to the group. And later, I'll be joined by Monocle's Laura Kramer for a culture wrap. Laura, what have you got for us today? We're going to be talking about an exciting collaboration that's reshaping how we look at Picasso's masterpieces. And we'll be hearing from Keanu Reeves, who spoke to Monocle24. All that to look forward to. Plus, we'll be talking Turkey too later in the programme. That's ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. First up on today's show to Beijing, where its annual National People's Congress is underway. The week-long session's set to be a reliably predictable affair, but there are still subtle shifts and broader indications of China's political direction of travel that are always worth paying attention to. Well, to shine a spotlight on some of those, joining us now down the line is the founder of China Dialogue and Monocle24 regular contributor, Isabel Hilton. Isabel, good afternoon to you. Um, lots to look out for. Maybe we start with China's new foreign minister, the first presser. We've just had it always a little bit stage managed. Um, but there's always things to, to read into what we see and hear at the MPC, aren't there? Well, there are. And um, I, I, I'm afraid uh, if we're looking for a, a, a sort of friendly new face, um, we won't really get it with Qin Gang. It was a Pretty robust performance. Um, very critical of the United States, as you'd expect. No slackening off there. Um, also blaming the U.S. for everything from Ukraine to um, to debt problems because of high interest rates, allegedly, and uh, demanding that the United States hit the brakes on confrontation or things will go very badly indeed. So uh, it wasn't really much backing down from the very... Um, sort of assertive position, shall we say, that China's been taking. He also said that China's relations with Russia set a good example for international relations, which won't go down terribly well in Brussels, I don't think. Um, always interesting to get your take on the sort of hierarchy, whether that's the optics at the MPC or, or more of the substance behind it. Uh, what about the likely direction of travel in terms of the next premier? The, the sort of rankings are always interesting to look at, aren't they, as well? They are, and he's very much um, uh, Li Chang, confusing. They're rather similar names. So we are losing Li Keqiang, and we are, we're gaining Li Chang, who was most recently in charge of Shanghai during that rather disastrous lockdown, which a lot of people thought had put pay to his chances for promotion, but far from it. Not only is he now uh, premier, but he's also reckoned to be number two after Xi Jinping on the Standing Committee of the Politburo. So, you know, he's definitely uh, definitely a man to watch. And the other thing to watch if we're looking at power is the... Um, it hasn't been published in full, but at the at the pre-meeting uh, where the party essentially fixes the agenda for what is supposed to be the non-party meeting of the National People's Congress, um, 
we, the, 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 a lot of time was spent on what is called institutional reform. So there's a party and state institutional reform plan, which was approved at the party meeting and part of which will be presented eventually to the NPCC. Now, what this is going to do is to consolidate more power in the party rather than the state. So you have a kind of parallel system in China where you know you have the state organs uh, of which the highest is the state council and you have the party organs of which the highest is the standing committee, the Politburo. And over Li Keqiang's premiership, and he was not regarded as a trusted figure by Xi Jinping, powers that were properly his, if you like, have been leached away into the party structure. And it looks like this plan will just will consolidate that further. Uh, and just on the sort of economics, I, I wanted to get a quick sense from you on this as well. The, the target's slightly more modest than we're expecting, you know, growth at sort of 5%, which was sort of unimaginably low if we go back a, a, a few years. Um, I don't know. Is that a surprise? It's lower than analysts were expecting. It's slightly lower because I think people were fairly confident that there would be a post-COVID bounce. But, um, you know, there's a, there are a lot of problems uh, in the Chinese economy. And... Um, Yeah, if you look at actually last year, 3%. I mean, admittedly, China spent a lot of its time in lockdown, but that was the first time in recent history that China's growth rate has been lower than the global average. So, you know, it really was a bit of a shock to the system, which I think is why people were expecting more of an uptick this year. But clearly, it seems the the party itself or the government itself is is pretty concerned about things like the property collapse, things we've discussed before. Um, Property collapse, I noticed they're instituting a new super regulatory body for the financial system. And I think that reflects their concerns about uh, uh, banks going under. You know, we've had a lot of problems of people trying to get their money out of um, local and provincial banks and and not being able to. So, you know, you can see there's a lot of um, there's a lot going on. And trying to stimulate the economy and at the same time meet China's green targets is going to be difficult because normally the way China stimulates the economy is by pouring concrete. That's the quickest way to do it. But that is really losing its power these days. And it is in direct contradiction to the green targets, the emissions target that China's also set itself. So in a bit of a fix, and I think a modest target that they can over-fulfill is always better in China than setting a high bar and missing it. That's really bad for your career. Well, speaking of career, we've obviously got a big uh, reshuffle. I, I, put, I put it to you as well. I don't know if this is a slight oversimpli- oversimplification of the situation, but are we seeing a new, a new sort of crop, a new breed of Xi loyalists who are perhaps replacing slightly more reform-minded predecessors? Is that is that, again? Is that does that capture the direction of travel? Uh, yes, it does. I mean, it depends what what sort of reform you're looking for. The the kind of reform that that this particular group will support are Xi's plans for more power for the party, which is a kind of political reform. It's just not the direction that people wanted to see it all going in. Um, and yes, they are absolutely being read as uh, much more in Xi Jinping's direct circle. You know, China's a big place and there are there are a lot of contending interests in Chinese politics. But over the past 10 years, we've certainly seen Xi deal with a lot of those rival centers of power, rival, rival figures who might challenge his authority. So we've got a 
fairly monochrome bunch now. And there are dangers in that, of course, that, you know, the, the problem of delivering bad news to the boss um, or having a robust debate of any kind, that all becomes more difficult. And the problem with that is that if mistakes are made, then they're very hard to correct. Absolutely fascinating as well. Well, hopefully we'll check in with you a little later uh, this week uh, to get more of your uh, insights into what we see and hear from the MPC. That was Isabel Hilton. Right now, let's cross over to Monocle's Paige Reynolds. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has made an unannounced trip to Iraq ahead of the 20-year anniversary of the US-led invasion. The 2003 invasion killed tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians and led to instability that eventually paved the way for the rise of the Islamic State militants. French labour unions have launched major strikes nationwide in a fresh effort to push against President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform plans. Police expect between 1.1 million and 1.4 million people to take to the streets in over 260 locations. And Japan's new medium-lift rocket failed on its debut flight in space today after the launcher's second-stage engine did not ignite as planned. This comes as a blow to Japan's efforts to cut the cost of accessing space and compete against Elon Musk's SpaceX. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Paige. Now to Sweden, where later today, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg is set to meet Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen. A Hungarian delegation has also arrived in town, all in the interest of discussing the country's application to join the military alliance. We'll be discussing this live in just a moment. But before we do that, Sweden's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Tobias Bilstrom, spoke to us on this matter for this week's edition of The Foreign Desk a little earlier. Let's have a quick listen to what he had to say. It has already been clear since Madrid and onwards that these are processes owned by sovereign states. It is a Swedish decision to join NATO. It is a Finnish decision to join NATO. And it is a process within the Turkish parliament to ratify our application. So there isn't really much to say about this. We can't influence it. But of course, in the short term, it doesn't mean so much if Finland were to be ratified prior to Sweden. In the long run, though, if there were to be a long period of time after Finland having been let in as a NATO member, that would cause some problems to both the Swedish and Finnish defence cooperation, which is already existing, but also, of course, to NATO planning, which takes into account the fact that Sweden and Finland are supposed to be members of NATO in a context where NATO is basing the deployment of military forces, the decisions about where you put your capacities, etc. And if not Sweden and Finland are members, that would pose some problems. Well, there are a number of fascinating threads to pull at. To do that with us is Elizabeth Braw, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, native Swede, who joins us now from Washington, D.C. Good morning to you there, Elizabeth. Good afternoon from London. Uh, and tell us, first of all, what exactly is on the agenda? There's busy in for all the different stakeholders who are in Stockholm. Uh, it is indeed uh, a busy entry, and I think that the uh, in terms of, of Stoltenberg's visit, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, it's really just a bit of, of hand-holding and a reassurance because he can't do very much. Um, uh, he can uh, he can just reassure Sweden and Finland that at some point uh, 
their membership will happen uh, and uh, he can reassure them of, of, of NATO HQ's support for them. In the meantime, we should remember that Sweden and Finland are already involved in uh, in a number of ways uh, in, in, um, in NATO's activities, except the most sensitive ones. And then the Hungarian delegation, Hungary is sort of the, the, the dark horse that has, <laughs> has emerged in recent weeks, uh, it had said, for a number of months, uh, yeah, yeah, we will ratify uh, um, sometime in the spring. Uh, and then uh, now we are, the spring is approaching and now they're saying, well, we have problems with the way Sweden and Finland, Sweden in particular, uh, talk about our democracy. And we, we want to discuss that. So it sounds like a bit of a, a, a veiled threat. We had thought that it was just a matter of logistics, um, uh, a little bit of, of uh, of posturing, maybe, but nothing very serious of, of the kind uh, that that uh, we have seen from Turkey. But uh, now this Hungarian delegation arriving seems to suggest that uh, Hungary is is willing to, to make this a, a bigger deal than we had thought. Yeah, even though it does appear that uh, Hungary's PM, Orban, has, he's talked about these alleged lies that some Swedes have been saying about, about Hungary. But it, we understand he has urged his party to, to vote yes in, in the planned vote later later this month. I wanted to pick up with you, though, Elizabeth, on something actually that we heard in that clip from, from Tobias Bilstrom. He was talking about the challenges for NATO and its ongoing functionality. If there is this long lag or a longer lag than desired between Finland potentially Potentially, uh, joining and then Sweden. Can you tell us a bit about why that presents such a, a tricky strategic challenge if there is indeed a, a longer gap between the two? I, it wouldn't be an operational challenge. NATO obviously works perfectly fine uh, or works very well uh, as is with Sweden and Finland in this sort of halfway house uh, uh, waiting to enter. And, and if Finland were to, to join Sweden before NATO, uh, Finland were to join NATO before Sweden, um, it would simply be part of, of all those structures and decision-making uh, before Sweden. Now, uh, the, the, the challenge, I think, is, is more for between Sweden and Finland because they do so much together. That's how they've built defence policy and, if in, and, and indeed uh, operations over the past few decades that they have shared as much as possible. They are extremely close uh, allies and they, they for example, uh, share things like that they can use each other's airfields and so forth. Um, so I think the challenge would be more for them. What do you do if if one country is a NATO member and the other is not, uh, if if the lag is longer than, than a few weeks or, or a couple of months? Um, so I, and by extension, I suppose that could per, per, uh, cause, a, um, cause complications within NATO. But uh, in, in reality, it's mostly between Sweden and Finland. And uh, that's why they always wanted to join together for political reasons and indeed operational reasons. Well, let me talk to you a little bit more about politics and in this case, domestic politics within Sweden. Um, it's not one of the most well-told narratives, but it's intriguing that uh, Christensen has been criticised in some quarters. Uh, I know the leader of the Social Democrats has criticised him for not inviting all parties um, to, to, to join these talks and join the meeting. Um, it's always a little bit of a hot potato these kind of negotiations. Do you think it's problematic, though, as an, for, you know, in terms of domestic Swedish politics to manage both these discussions and then the longer term plan? I think uh, this is mostly uh, the Social Democrats trying to, to find an, an, an issue with which to, to attack the government. We should remember that the Social Democrats were extremely 
uh, reluctant to file that application and they were in charge. They formed the government when Sweden filed, uh, submitted its application and they had, uh, they've been um, philosophically opposed to NATO membership uh, throughout history and uh, and indeed only uh, were only pushed to this step because Finland was so adamant that it was it was going to join and if Finland wanted to file a, uh, submit a membership application Sweden would have to do so too and the opposition uh, uh, center rights parties were also in favor of, of joining NATO and and since then now in in opposition the social democrats have used uh, the NATO issue to to attack the government they've been saying oh it's going too slowly and and it, it seems a bit disingenuous since uh, they their policy was never to join NATO. Um, well, what what are the key uh, markers, Elizabeth? If we look forwards, uh, we've obviously got this uh, a planned vote uh, in Hungary, as I said, on the twentieth, I think, of March, uh, to to look at the, uh, the the Swedish accession plans. Um, what what are things in your mind that you're looking out for in terms of maybe putting some meaningful dates on? what further progress could look like towards Swedish and Finnish uh, accession to the group? Well, I think the date that everybody's looking at is the, the are the elections in, in Turkey. Uh, as you say, uh, Hungary remains the, the smaller hurdle and, and it's likely to be cleared, even though the Hungarians are clearly of a mind to, to make their views known before then eventually ratifying uh, uh, Sweden and Finland's applications. Uh, but Turkey remains um, remains the, the, the key um, complication or dilemma or hurdle, however you want to put it. And it's fascinating to, to try to figure out what uh, how the, the earthquake will play into this whole debate. Now, the, the earthquake was obviously an, uh, 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 an act of mother, by Mother Nature, but uh, has uh, resulted in, in criticism of, uh, of Erdogan and the way his government has gone about building all those uh, all, all that new housing that turned out to be insufficient or, or um, unsafe. And... Uh, so he, while he had been focusing on on Sweden NATO uh, as as a sort of a uh, an election issue, now he's having to to defend himself in the public debate uh, over the the construction of, of of those houses and indeed the government's response to the earthquake. And Sweden wisely sent. Uh, sent teams to help uh, with uh, search and rescue after the earthquake. So it's, it, all of that is shifting as we speak, and it's not clear that Sweden is uh, the, 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 the marquee issue that it may have been uh, before the earthquake in, in, in that Turkish, uh, in, in, in President, President Erdogan's mind and indeed in the, in the Turkish election campaign. Yeah, well, we're going to be uh, talking about Turkey in just a moment, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, but thanks for your time uh, today. That was our friend Elizabeth Braw joining us on the line from Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there 
and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You're back with The Briefing. As we were just hearing, Turkey still reeling from the devastating impact of last month's earthquakes. But its national elections are nevertheless fast approaching. Last night, the country's opposition alliance named Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu to take on President Erdogan in the elections on May 14. So what does the road to May 14th look like? Well, joining us for more is Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Good afternoon to you, Hannah. Thanks for being with us. Um, let's start perhaps with that uh, uh, opposition alliance decision. Kamal uh, Kilith Darulu uh, is the chosen one. Um, what do we know about him? Well, I mean, it wasn't a surprise that he was chosen. Kilith Darulu has been the leader of the CHP, which is the biggest opposition party in Turkey since 2010. He has never won an election in that time, but he's stayed at the helm nonetheless. He's something of a uninspiring figure, a technocrat. Um, but the past four days, uh, really, his fortunes and the fortunes of, of the opposition have turned around. Uh, on Friday, one of the other parties in that coalition, the second biggest party, uh, pulled out, uh, basically opposing Kilich being the candidate, saying instead that it should be the Istanbul mayor, uh, Ekrem Imamolu, or the Ankara mayor, Mansur Yavash, both charismatic, popular figures. Um, but by Monday, they'd managed to bring uh, that party back into the fold, come up with a solution where Kalishtralo is the candidate uh, and where Yavash and Imamalu will be vice presidents should he win. So... Um, Really, it's been a it's been a rollercoaster few days in opposition politics in Turkey. Well, yeah, and Hannah, I guess one of the interesting things is the degree to which uh, a bit of that lack of charisma can sort of help. You mentioned he's a sort of you know technocrat, an economist in a suit, but we saw it in the US. Sometimes that is what you need if you're coming up against someone who's a big a big character. Is this is the view that he's what he's talking about offers substance that could actually really threaten to unseat Erdogan after what two two decades or so. Well, that's certainly the argument that uh, you know Kılıçdaroğlu's supporters will give. You know, they say that what Turkey needs at a time like this is a technocrat. It's somebody who can unite. You know, somebody um, who can bring together different factions of Turkish society: secularists, nationalists, Kurds, uh, Islamists. Um, and they say that Kılıçdaroğlu is the man to do that. But you know, in Turkish politics, charisma really counts. This is. Mm what has helped Erdogan to stay in power for as long as he has, 20 years now. Um, and, you know, it, it, having those two mayors, the Istanbul mayor and the Ankara mayor, also on the ticket, I think really helps to give a bit of that charisma that Kilich on his own would be lacking. Um, Hannah, what about the impact of the earthquake? It was interesting. We were talking uh, to Elizabeth Bohr a moment ago about you know Swedish and Finnish accession into into NATO and the critical importance of Turkey's forthcoming elections in this sort of wider conversation. We've been hearing from your powerful reporting from the region about the devastating impact, the, the, the length of the tail to this tragedy that stretches so far into the future. How fundamentally... Uh, do you think that's shifted the narrative around the election in terms of, I don't know, even just the public view of, of Erdogan and the different kinds of questions that he's having to answer? Well, of course, I mean, um, Erdogan and his government have faced huge criticism over their handling of the earthquake and also you know, the, the kind of state links to the big construction companies. Um, but, you know, you also have to remember that 
Erdogan has something in his pocket, which, you know, he's the one who can promise rebuilding. In fact, you know, already in some of those earthquake hit places, state construction is already underway. He's promised to rebuild homes for all the people displaced, millions of people uh, within the next year. So, you know, I think he will really try and play that to his advantage. Um, But, you know, clearly this was a huge disaster and it's reverberated across the whole country. Um, So, you know, I think certainly it it will have galvanised, I think, people who are already opposing Erdogan. And just if we if we quickly just sort of sum up what this election in May represents, it feels in some ways more consequential than others that have preceded it. Is there a sense where you are, the people that you've been speaking to, whether out on your reporting trips or back home, that this is an election that is more consequential than those that came before? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think every election in Turkey sort of feels like this to an extent. But, you know, I think it is symbolic. You know, Erdogan, as I said, has been in power for 20 years. There's a whole generation now who, you know, can't remember any other leader. It's not a government anymore. It's a regime. Um, And I think, you know, we've seen the speed at which Erdogan has dismantled um, a lot of the checks and balances, almost all of the checks and balances within the Turkish states, within the courts within you know, the electoral board, places like that, um, over the past five years and you know, given another five-year term, how much more he could do. So I, I do think there is a very strong sense of this kind of last chance uh, election for the opposition. Hannah, always great to speak with you. Thanks very much for being with us. That was our Hannah Lucinda Smith in Istanbul. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle 24. Twenty-five minutes past midday in London. Finally, on today's programme, we're joined in studio by Monocle 24's very own Laura Kramer for a culture wrap and a bit of showbiz in the mix. Laura, though, where shall we start today? We're starting at Midori House, Tom. There's some breaking news. <laughs> uh, Monocle's, 20, <clears throat> Monocle's own uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco has gotten a Eurovision ticket. It I'm is... Ne- now, this is this is big news because I gather it's been something of the bun fight to try and get these things. They've been, like, well, more valuable than gold dust, it seems. Listen, you've been down here in the dip depths of Studio One while upstairs you've got credit cards flinging. Carlotta's like, I'm in 2000 row. Our research, like, you have no idea. And Faye finally got it and people applauded. I'm not, I wish I was joking. People applauded and Faye's, thank you so much. You don't know what this means to me. That's my Faye impression. Sorry about that, Faye. It's very good. Uh, our Eurovision desk chief. <laughs> (laughs) of course. He needs to be on the front lines of Eurovision. More on that breaking story (laughs) as we get it, Laura. Um, But you've been busy doing all sorts and you've found some fascinating stories across the cultural firmament from all points, north and south, east and west. Talk us through them. Yeah, let's start in Austria, where a museum in Vienna is showcasing a new image of the Empress Elizabeth. So this is at the CC Museum. She's kind of known for her beauty. Her hair was very renowned. And so they decided they wanted to kind of updo her image in a bit, especially around for uh, International Women's Day tomorrow and for International Women's Month. And so there's this very famous original painting which attracts millions of people from around the world every year. 
but it's been covered up by a new portrait, so, so-called, of Cece that redirects the visitor's gaze from her outer feature to her inner work. So essentially, it's encouraging people to remember women for being full complex creatures, not just things to look at. So it's, it's a mini sort of miniature poem that they've taken little clips about her aspirations, about the things she learned. And yeah, that's showing in Vienna until the end of March. And interestingly, that provides an elegant sort of segue to the next story, which is another uh, gallery show, but that sort of asks fresh questions, sets new contexts uh, for different reasons. Tell us about this one, because it's a really interesting take on the sort of cancel culture moment, the idea of reappraising and uh, fresh, freshly criticising artists, perhaps for whom there was a bit of a a widely understood and recognised sort of public impression. Tell us more. Yeah, so we're going to France now, uh, where many exhibitions, actually not just in France, but in Bucharest, New York, a lot of places, they're getting ready to celebrate uh, the, well, mark the 50th anniversary of Pablo Picasso's death. And the museum in Paris um, got uh, Paul Smith to art direct uh, the and curate, essentially, the, the exhibit that's going to be on show. Now, he is known for his very bold patterns. You, use of colors and it's an interesting take on Picasso which are already very bold and colorful pieces to begin with for the most part and he's decided to rather than approach it with white walls it's showing them against the backdrop of these stripes bright pink uh, walls it's very different take on Picasso wallpaper heavily printed wallpaper in the mix Um, heavily printed and not just Paul Smith's uh, fresh critical eye but I gather there's other works that are being hung up Picasso of course um, depicted and collected indeed African artifacts in his work he's got a lot of sort of uh, criticism for that in certain quarters his treatment of women he was a sort of uh, legendarily terrible in a lot of his personal relationships Um, but the kind of cancel culture story is a bit tired we don't necessarily subscribe to that but what we do subscribe to is the idea of recognising that, explaining it, trying to bring that narrative into the public understanding of the works. And this looks like a really smart way to, to, to do that without sort of trashing the artist's reputation completely. Yeah, they're not glazing over it. Like I think some potential art houses have tried to in the past and said there are going to be 37 works by contemporary artists as well, including black uh, feminist artists. And so again, they're not trying to shy away from his personal life, uh, but rather just look at it in in fresh perspectives and how to include this in the conversation, because it is an important conversation at the end of the day. And plus, it's going to help hopefully bring in youth and more uh, younger people to these collections. Uh, Good luck to them with that. We have to turn. Laura next to, well, what have you been doing? Where where did you go yesterday evening, if it's not remiss of me to ask? (laughs) Last night I was speaking to Keanu Reeves about his new film, John Wick, Chapter 4, of course, the fourth installment in the franchise. It's very exciting. I was on the the red carpet. Have you? Of course I haven't, Laura, but do continue. (laughs) It was a very rainy, wet, London wet carpet. It was actually horrific. But this film is the first one that they've kind of uh, shot in different locations. It was filmed in Berlin, Tokyo, New York, and Paris. And uh, in Paris, they actually shot at a very famous museum. And I asked Keanu what that was like because they they were constricted by having to obviously not knock over anything. And I'll let him explain. It was really extraordinary to be filming on the in front of Sacre Coeur, and then the Louvre. I heard you couldn't do a lot of the action sequences in the Louvre. Yeah, we didn't have that. We had we had uh, dramatic action, throwing down is a test of wills. That's pretty cool. 
Sorry, I was just laughing away. Good old Keanu. Um, so yeah, dramatic action. Dramatic want, action. He would, it would sully his reputation forever if he sort of broke the Mona Lisa, for example. Um, he sounded on good form. He he was in great form despite the, the cold weather and the wetness. However, let me tell you, because of his now character in John Wick and the other action films that he's done, and scientists in a German research and infection institute um, have decided to name something after him. They have discovered a new substance that could help kill fungal diseases that affects humans. Sorry. Hard news. So there's a there's a, a fungi yeah. killing substance yeah. that's named after the big fella. Yeah, so it's Keanu Mycins, uh, of course, which is named after him. And now one of the researchers says that it is so it kills so efficiently that they decided to name them after Keanu because he too is extremely deadly in his roles. Wow. Um, can I just say I didn't think that was where we would be wrapping up today's edition of The Briefing. Uh, Laura Kramer, thank you very much. Uh, light and shade from around the world of culture on today's programme. More from Laura at the same time next week, probably sooner, if she has other world exclusives like that to share with us. And that is all, sadly, that we have time for on today's edition of The Programme, which was expertly produced by Paige Reynolds. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and Monica Lillis, and our studio manager was Nora Hall. My thanks to them one and all. We will, of course, be back at the same time tomorrow. That's noon here in London, 1300, if you're listening on CET. If you want to hear more, though, about Monocle's take on the day's news and some of the big stories, maybe some of the smaller ones you might have missed. You don't have to wait that long. The Monocle Daily with Andrew Muller coming away at 1800 London time. That is in five and one half short hours from now. I'm Tom Edwards. That is your briefing this Tuesday. Goodbye and thanks for listening.